And while you are turning there, let me just explain. The reason why we are in James this morning is because I believe that this message, this text in James chapter 2 here is one of the most important for the church today. So James chapter 2, we'll be covering verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing gold, a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. And we ask that you would apply it to our hearts. That you would cause us to to, to learn grow, to be changed this very day, that you would convict us of our sins, that you would strengthen and encourage us. And we ask, Father, for your Holy Spirit to help us, to guide us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So once again, we are covering a a large portion of James here. And the reason why we're going to do this this morning instead of this evening is because more people come in the morning. And I think that this is a very important message for us today. And we're also going to cover a lot more than I normally do because I want to consider this, this entire chapter. We'll cover the, the rest of chapter 2 this evening. But I want to consider this as a whole. The, the, we could spend three, four sermons on the, the first 13 verses here. But this is a case where I don't want to miss the forest for the trees. I want us to be able to see very clearly James' cohesive thought here. You see, you and I live in a world that, that just loves to divide people based upon a wide variety of factors. And in doing this, we we treat people differently based upon these different classifications or characteristics that we assign. And this is happening abundantly in our culture, so we are forced to ask the question as a church, do we adopt these things that the culture is doing? Or do we press the culture in the opposite direction? Direction? Do do we bring these things into the church or do we reject these things? 
Treating people differently based upon external factors is nothing new. And this is precisely what James is dealing with in this text. So we start today with a command. Verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. What is partiality? It is respect of persons. It is favoritism. The Greek word literally means receiving the face. Douglas Moo points out that to receive the face means to make judgments about people based on external appearance. And James applies this principle to differences in dress that reflect contrasting socioeconomic situations. But the Greek word here is plural. And this makes clear that the prohibition has wide-ranging application. We are not to make decisions about people based on any external factor, whether it be dress, color of skin, or general physical appearance. MacArthur notes that favoritism can be defined as a preferential attitude and treatment of a person or group over another having equal claims and rights. James is saying that Christians are not to show partiality or favoritism. Christians should not look at people and based upon what they see, based upon external factors, treat people differently. And so James gives us an example. He says in verse 2, For if a man wearing wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? James appears to be addressing an actual situation Two visitors walk into a church. One of them is obviously wealthy. He has on a $1,000 suit. An $800 pair of of Allen Edmund shoes. Obviously wealthy. Based upon appearance. The other person comes in and his clothes are dirty. They have holes in them. He is obviously poor based upon his appearance. And as these two men enter the church, they are ushered to seats. The obviously rich man is taken to the best seat in the church. You say, here, come sit in the front. Or if you're a Baptist, the best seat is in the back. So you say, here, you sit here in the back. The point is, take the best seat. While you say to the poor man, stand over there, or sit here at my footstool, sit here at my feet. Or today, perhaps you tell the rich man, come and sit with my family, or come sit here in this good place while you simply ignore the poor man. Or maybe there's appearance that this person is affluent and and, and, and he's wealthy, so, so after the church service, people flock to him to, to speak to him while the poor man goes unnoticed. James says you pay attention to the one and fine clothing. And pay attention to means to look at with favor. Now, all we know about these two men is what they look like, and we only look at one of them with favor. What is that? That is partiality. That is favoritism. Amez McConnell in the Schemes in Scotland tells a a story where a lot of time in their schemes, they will have a cafe. This is a good way for them to evangelize people. And he walks into this cafe and, and he sees a, a poor brother sitting there. And beyond him, he sees a very wealthy man who he knows 
can, can, can be very valuable to his ministry financially. And he, he thought to himself, should I just pass over this poor man without even noticing to go to the affluent man? And he said to himself, what would that be? Partiality. I deem that you are not worthy of me stopping to talk to you. I need to go and make sure I have a good relationship with the affluent man. That, dear friends, is partiality. And here's what James says about this happening. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? MacArthur notes that in both instances, the sin is partiality, making distinctions among yourselves by showing special favor to the well-dressed man and showing discourtesy, if not contempt, for the poor man. To do either is a serious sin, and those who are guilty of it become judges with evil motives. In each case, the treatment of the visitor was based on superficial, self-interested, and worldly motives. Among Christians, such distinctions is much more than poor hospitality. It is plainly evil. What other motives would a person have for ignoring this poor brother and showing great favor to this rich brother? What motives could drive that? James says... You have become judges with evil thoughts. You are placing one of those brothers up against another one, and you are holding one to be more uh, worthy of favor based upon your evil thoughts. But why is it evil to show partiality? Well, first of all, partiality is sinful, and it does not reflect God's character. Listen to verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? God does not show partiality. Deuteronomy 10, 17 and 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. 2 Chronicles 19, 7. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality, or taking bribes. If there's something God wants you to know about himself, he wants you to know that he is impartial. And this impartiality of God is shown by what James says. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith And heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. Many who are poor in this world have been chosen by God to be saved, elected by God. And God choosing them before the foundation of the world did not prevent them from becoming poor in this world. And them becoming poor in this world did not prevent God from regenerating their hearts And saving them. God is impartial. Paul tells the Corinthians. Consider your calling. Brothers. Not many of you were wise. According to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Paul tells the Corinthian church this. What is he saying? Christianity is not a social club that's explicitly for the elite. In the world, being rich and famous may get you favor, may get you things that you want, but it does not get you into God's kingdom. 
You cannot buy your way into God's kingdom. Your prominence cannot get you into God's kingdom. Why? Because he does not show partiality. Difference, as a matter of fact, okay, this is simply a fact. Many of those who have been saved throughout history have been poor. This is a simple fact, but, but let us not take this too far. Because what happens if we take this too far? Well, Moo points out that some interpreters, particularly advocates of liberation theology, suggest a very broad interpretation. God chooses only poor people for salvation, while wealthy people are excluded. But as Mood notes, this interpretation is possible only if we ignore the many New Testament passages, including one we have argued here in James, that include wealthy people in the church. It also reads into the text the word only, which James simply does not use. James is not saying that salvation is only for the poor and the oppressed. That's not what he is saying. James is not teaching liberation theology. He is simply saying that God honors many who are poor in this world by choosing them to be in his kingdom. So here's the the thrust of this point. God honors many who are poor. But listen to verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Being poor does not stop God from from saving a man. Because God shows no partiality. And the expectation is that we don't either. Because partiality is not only disobedience to God, but it is dishonoring those whom God honors. Consider that. To show contempt. For your poor brother is to dishonor one for whom Christ laid down his life. This is how much Christ loved this poor person. That he shed his blood. That he took the father's wrath for him. And you say, he's not worthy of me loving. He's not worthy of me showing any attention to him. Matthew Henry notes that God has made those heirs of a kingdom whom you make of no reputation and has given very great and glorious promises to those to whom you can hardly give a good word or a respectful look. And is this not a monstrous iniquity in you who pretend to be the children of God and conformed to him? He says this respect of persons is a heinous sin. Because it shows ourselves to be directly contrary to God who does not do that. John Gill said they they are dishonored and reproached. These people, they they dishonored and reproached the poor man by showing respect of persons and, and preferring the rich to them and in distinguishing them in such a manner as was to their contempt and injury, which is a reproaching not only of them, but their maker. It is a reproaching of their maker and is in effect saying that God has done either a weak or a wrong thing in choosing them to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Dear friends, when we despise the poor, we are saying, God, you should not have saved that person. You should not have done that. That was a weak thing for you to do. That was a wrong thing for you to do. Dear friends, let us be careful of committing this heinous sin. And then James gives another reason why their partiality is wrong. He says in verse 6, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? And James is not trying to, to start a class war here. He's not saying that the rich people, that they don't like you, so you shouldn't like them. That's not what he's saying. James is speaking to the motive of those believers who are showing partiality. 
Why would anyone ignore or despise the poor while showing favoritism to the rich? Dear friends, is it, is it very difficult for us to imagine why someone would show favoritism to a rich person? Is, it, is that difficult for us to imagine? Proverbs 19.4 Wealth brings many new friends. But a poor man is deserted by his friends. Why are these believers wanting to show favoritism to the rich? Because the rich have something they want. Prominence. Finances. Why would a church want to show favoritism to the rich? Well, I don't know. Maybe because they can solve your financial problems. Maybe if there's a person of prominence in your church, everyone knows about your church. James is saying that that you show favoritism to the rich because they are rich, but are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court, and are not they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. James is showing the irrationality of their favoritism. You despise the poor who don't treat you badly, but you show favoritism to the rich who oppress you and who persecute you, who drag you into the courts, and who blaspheme the name of Christ. James is not saying, don't be nice and hospitable to the rich. He is simply pointing out the folly of what they are doing. Showing preference to those who blaspheme. Showing preference to those who who persecute them. And not for righteous reasons, but for selfish reasons. In other words, not only only is what you're doing sinful, but it's stupid. Are you gaining favor from this? No. They're persecuting you. They're blaspheming the name of Christ. This is gaining you nothing. So not only is it sinful, but it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work. You're not going to convert them by showing them favor. You're not gaining anything from them through this. Dear friends, these can be cutting words. He's telling these believers, don't show partiality. And he's saying some of you have shown partiality. You have favored the rich while despising the poor. And in this, you have become A judge with evil thoughts. You have dishonored the poor. And by doing this, you have dishonored God himself. You have committed heinous sin. And not only that, but your self-seeking greed has caused you to favor those who abuse you and blaspheme you over those whom God has saved. Cutting Words. And James realizes the, the hardness of what he is saying, so he, so he anticipates the reaction that we, he will get from his readers. And I believe that this is what we see in the, in the rest of this chapter is sort of a, of, a, of a dialogue. So James anticipates their excuse, their objection, and he responds to it. This is what we call a prolepsis. He says in verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. This is a very strange way to start a verse. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the to the scripture, this seems to have come out of nowhere, and this is why it is believed that he is answering a potential objection or response to what he just said, answering the objection before it arises. So James rebukes believers for showing partiality, and he anticipates 
That some will say, I am being very hospitable and I am showing this great favor to the rich because I'm simply fulfilling the command to love my neighbor as myself. By the way, using that verse out of context is not new. We do it today, don't we? We don't have a good reason for why we want to say something. We say, love your neighbors yourself. This is the catch-all. Everything can be umbrellaed under this one excuse. This is what he anticipates. They are going to say, I'm showing favor to the rich because I'm loving my neighbor as myself. After all, you can't condemn me for fulfilling the law. He anticipates this. So he writes... If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. In other words, if that's what you are really doing, if you are really pampering the rich visitor because you want to love your neighbor as yourself, fine, good job. But, if what you are actually doing is showing partiality, know that you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law as a transgressor. James says, okay. You know your heart. If your heart's desire in this, by the way, James knows that this is not their heart's desire because they are despising the poor. But he says, okay, if your heart's desire in showing favoritism to the rich is to love your neighbor, it's good, keep the law. But if what you're actually doing is showing favoritism, you are a sinner. The law convicts you as a transgressor. Dear friends, what a wicked thing to do. To excuse sin by calling it obedience to Scripture. To know in your heart that you are sinning. To know that your motives are evil. But to excuse your sin by claiming obedience to God. When I was studying this, I said, do we do this today? And as I began to ponder this, the the applications just flowed like water. How easy is it for man to get into a sinful relationship with a woman in the name of, I'm just caring for my sister in Christ. I'm just caring for her. She needs me. How easy is it for a believer To maintain a relationship of being sinfully, unequally yoked to an unbeliever in the name of evangelizing. I need, this person needs me. They need me. I am the gospel influence in their life. They they need me. I am doing a good thing. I am obeying the scripture while you are actually sinning. How often do parents neglect To disciple their children in the name of providing for them as the Bible commands. And I'm not talking about the person who who has to work long hours because that's what it takes to provide. I'm talking about the person who knows in their heart that they are working nonstop because they want nice things. And my children will be sacrificed for that. And use the excuse... The Lord calls me to be a provider. When in your heart you know that it's not about providing for your family, it's about getting grown-up toys. How many pastors have sinfully neglected their families for the sake of doing God's work in the ministry? You say, you are neglecting your family. You are not discipling them. I know, I'm doing the important work of the ministry. Using scripture as an excuse to sin. 
How many are guilty of gossip and slander in the name of righteousness? How many prayer meetings or prayer groups are nothing more than an excuse to gossip and slander to talk about things you shouldn't be talking about? It's an excuse, right? Because at the end of it, we're going to pray for them. Let's talk about all the juicy information that's not our business and then pray for them at the end. So we kind of, we kind of just paint it over with a the, with the scriptural brush there. Dear friends, how many Christians hear one side of a story, make up their mind about what happened, thus ignoring the scriptural command to, to, to not make judgments before hearing both sides, and not only ignore scripture, but begin gossiping and slandering in the name of biblical justice. Excusing Pride, excusing slander, excusing gossip by calling it seeking justice. Difference, how long has this been happening? Years and years and years ago. I remember someone slandering Vodi Bakum publicly. Saying to him, talking about him. Oh, this is a very bad man. He, he does a lot of, of very bad things, but I can't tell you what. Publicly slandering this man. But saying, well, I can't tell you why. Sinning. In the name of fulfilling a biblical man to, to warn people. Using scripture to sin. Men with prominent ministries like, like John MacArthur. How often do you hear about some so-called discernment blogger? Wanting all the juicy information about a counseling case that they have no business getting into. And then slander that man publicly. Slander all of the elders of the church. Say all of the elders, the entire church covers sin. What slander? To, to say that, that to, to, to accuse an entire eldership and an entire church of covering sin because you know one half of a story that you heard. God help us. But this is what we see all over the internet. I better share this slanderous information about this man, even though I don't know what happened. And why am I sharing this information? Because I'm being faithful to Scripture. I'm warning people of false shepherds using Scripture as an excuse to sin. This is what they were doing. Showing favoritism to the rich and calling it loving my neighbor as myself. But James tells them, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. But oftentimes Christians even are self-seeking and prideful. Difference, pride is an awful thing that, that prevents us from receiving correction. This is why in chapter 1 he said, be quick to hear, be slow to speak, and be slow to anger. This is why he said, receive with meekness. Receive with meekness. The implanted word which is able to save your souls, even when the word cuts you to the heart. Receive it with meekness. But pride won't let us do that. Will it? Dear friends, unless we are meek and slow to anger, we will not allow ourselves to be corrected. James rebukes professing believers for, for showing partiality. He knows that some of them will deny showing favoritism and say they are simply loving their neighbors. So James tells them that, that if that's what they're really doing, then, then well, but, but, but know that if you are showing partiality, you are a transgressor of the law. And we know, once again, that this is exactly what these people were doing because they despised the poor. But some won't receive this correction. He's already called them. He's called them out on what they're doing. You're actually sinning. 
You're actually transgressing the law. But, but what happens when a prideful man, even a prideful Christian, receives this type of correction, this type of rebuke? Well, sometimes he repents. But oftentimes, instead of repenting, what does he do? He belittles his sin. Sproul notes that we have a tendency to exalt to the supreme level of godliness whatever virtues we possess and downplay our vices as insignificant points. So this is what we do. You are sinning. Well, that's just a small thing compared to what other people are doing. I mean, it's an amazing thing. How we do this. I mean, we know better than this, don't we? But, but we still do it. Someone confronts you on your sin, but, but your pride simply says, I will not repent. I will belittle this sin. It's not a big deal. I don't have a major problem. By the way, this is why we are willing to try to correct others for sin and do it in a sinful way. Imagine that. Sinning while trying to tell people that they're sinning. This is why we are willing to do that. Because we downplay our sins while we make the sins of others unforgivable. And again, James knows that some of his readers will downplay their sin of partiality when confronted with the truth. He anticipates his readers thinking they are okay because they obey what they consider to be the most important commands. They are good in all the areas that are, that are really important. Even though they are guilty of partiality. So he addresses this in verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. The point is that that partiality is disobedience to God. It is transgression of his law. And, And if you have broken one of his commandments, you are a lawbreaker. This is not saying that all sins are as equally heinous. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying because you hate someone, you might as well go and murder them physically. What he is saying is that if you have broken the law, you are a lawbreaker. Don't say my sin is a little one. The law, dear friends, is a boundary. If we were playing basketball and the ball goes out of the boundary... Would you go to the ref and say, well, what do you mean it's their ball? The, ball? the ball went out of bounds on this side. At least it didn't go out on that side. Does it matter? No. What's the point? The ball went outside of the boundary. God has set a boundary in his law. And when we transgress, we, we can't say we are better than other people because at least we don't go out the boundary on the north side. If you have sinned, even if your sin is partiality, even if our sin is a gossip or whatever it may be, it is a transgression of the law. It is disobedience to the law giver. Dear friends, when we gossip, when we slander, these are not justifiable small sins. Do we realize that? Difference, I have seen, once again, churches, plural, pastors, Christians, sinfully slandered in the name of confronting sin that did not even exist, or in some cases, no one ever really knew. And I'm talking about plural churches. Where people are actually justifying their sin of dragging names, dragging churches through the mud in the name of justice. 
What on earth? This is abominable. I'm excusing my sin of slander. Why? Because I need to seek justice. What is justice? I don't know. What happened? I don't know. Again, churches like MacArthur's that are in the public light, this happens all of the time. We've seen it here. We see it everywhere. Talk to other pastors. It happens everywhere. Christians calling their sin. Obedience to Scripture. And once confronted because of their sin, they downplay their sins while the sins of others are damnable and unforgivable. All sin is transgression of the law. All sin makes us lawbreakers. Is this any way for Christians to behave? Let's see what James says. Verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. He calls it the law of liberty. And I believe this is his way of addressing Christians here. That that the law is liberty to them and no longer condemns them. When they were without Christ, the the law in a very real sense, even even though it was a schoolmaster to, to show them Christ, it also condemns them. It calls for their death. And punishment. But after a man is saved, the law becomes his friend. It becomes his, his delight, his guide to holiness and righteousness. So James is saying, conduct yourselves as Christians. Speak and behave like Christians. If we are showing partiality, we are not acting like Christians. If we are sinning and calling it obedience to God, we are not acting like Christians. If we are justifying our sins once confronted by belittling them instead of confessing and repenting, we are not acting like Christians. So speak and so act as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. And he says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James has addressed the way these believers were were favoring the rich. but, But now he exposes how they are despising the poor. By warning them that they will not be shown mercy if they don't show it to others. By treating the poor with contempt, they were not being merciful. Mercy has to do with compassion. They were not showing compassion to the poor. But what did we just cover in James chapter 1, verse 27? What is pure and undefiled religion before God the Father? What is it? To visit, to help, to relieve those who are most poor and desolate in society. And these people are despising them in the church. James says that pure religion is to visit the orphan and the widow to help those who are most poor everywhere. Not only are they not doing that, they are despising the very poor brothers and sisters in their midst. Their religion was not pure. It was not undefiled. Douglas Moo points out that being merciful, as these texts suggest, is not merely a feeling of concern, but involves actively reaching out to show love to others. The discrimination that James readers are are practicing is the opposite of such mercy. And if they continue on this path, they will find at the end of their lives a judgment without mercy. Why? Not because you earn mercy by showing mercy. 
Because if you have experienced the mercy of God through Christ, you will show mercy to others. And if you refuse to show mercy to others, it is evident that you have never actually experienced God's mercy. And James ends this thought by writing that that mercy triumphs over judgment. Dear friends, we deserved hell. The wages of our sins is, is death. But God's mercy triumphed over that. And so we read that that we are not punished according to our sins. We have not received what we should have received. But his mercies are new morning by morning. God's mercy prevents us from receiving the judgment we deserved. And as Christians, this should make us passionate about showing mercy to others. But instead of showing mercy to others, these believers have become judges with wicked thoughts. As they have received mercy from God. Instead of that judgment, they should also be be not judging that person based upon his appearance, but showing mercy as God has shown mercy to us. And in conclusion here, I want to bring out two quick points of application. Number one, as individuals and as a church, we must make sure that we do not despise the poor. Dear friends, it is is very easy, even for Christians, to be selective in who we desire for God to save and bring into our church. How easy is it for us to desire that that God save and bring in wealthy people whose lives seem to be well put together? But do we equally desire God to save and add to his church those who are poor, those who have nothing, those who can contribute nothing financially to us, those whose lives are messed up, addicted to drugs, addicted to alcohol, living in prostitution? Do we desire for God to save those people and bring them into our churches with their messy lives? And dear friends, let me assure you, it is messy. I grew up with my dad being a pastor in a Pentecostal church. What would happen is we would oftentimes have crackheads in our home, stealing stuff, when they're there to get help. I've dealt with, 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 with many different people who I would have rather avoided because their lives were so messy that, that I knew it was going to cost me. Here goes this person again. I'm going to turn the corner and go this way so he doesn't see me. Why? Because his life is messy. Is that love? No, dear friends, that is partiality. And we, we better be careful with this. I'm speaking to our hearts. Are we equally anxious to see God save and bring to harbor those with messy lives, those who who are poor and those who are needy, as we are to see people who are wealthy and well put together? This, dear friends, is a test of true religion. What is our heart's desire? And for our last point of application here, as believers, we must reject all forms of partiality. Okay, let's get biblical now. There's not a good partiality and a bad partiality. We see this nowhere in the scripture. We know that it is wrong to show favoritism to the rich and despise the poor. For some time, we we knew that it was wrong to look at someone's skin color and show favoritism based upon that, but in many Christian circles, we no longer know that. Perhaps if James 
rewrote this today, he would say, a white man and a black man walks into your church. You say to the black man, sit here in a good place. And you say to the white man, you sit over there or sit here at my footstool. Do we see the absurdity of this? But do we realize that this is actually what's happening? This is what is actually happening today. We have seen a shift in our culture that, that, has, that has crept into the church. It is true that, that many years ago, whites were treated better than blacks in, in most of America. But much work was done to reverse that. And over the years, much progress was made. Do you realize, dear friends, that I am the result of that progress? My dad was blacker than his microphone. And my mom is about the color of my shirt. I am the result of that progress. But we have now arrived at a place where the culture tells us once again to judge people based upon the color of their skin. And it's okay because it's not racism, it's reverse racism. That's not a biblical term. The biblical term for that is partiality. And so our culture believes that if you are black or another minority, you should receive preferential treatment. And this is a good thing, they say. And so we have things such as affirmative action, which, by the way, can be called positive discrimination as though that were an actual thing. People think this is good. They think this is justice because they, they believe that, that a person ha- having an equal opportunity to do something is the same thing as, as having equal results. But it is not. So at one point in time, it was all about, let's get to this place where man is judged by his character, not by his color. But we have left that place, and the church has followed to this place where we say, don't worry about his character, let's look at his color. So so Christians who are embracing this are embracing partiality in the name of seeing more minorities in schools and organizations and certain businesses. Christians have no business judging people based upon external factors such as the color of their skin or their ethnicity. We should reject the idea that fighting for diversity in the workplace and organizations and even in churches, because this is happening as well, we should reject that this is somehow a noble fight. Equal opportunity? Yes. Because there's no partiality there. But showing discrimination to assure a certain result is partiality. That's nothing more than showing favoritism to the rich and despising the poor so that our churches are filled with rich people only. It's the same thing. You are trying to influence a result by showing favoritism. But it's not just our culture. It's the church and our seminaries. We have Christian leaders who admit that they would make choices based upon skin color and say that as though it was good. Many of you have heard me say before of of this prominent evangelical teacher who who said if there was a a black man who was was maybe a seven on the leadership scale, but there's a, a white man who's a nine, he's going with the black man. What is that? His decision is being based upon what? Color of skin. This is in the church. But what about our seminaries? One of the most well-known, prominent Baptist seminaries in this country. Historically conservative. Has a professor 
who believes that white supremacy is alive and well in seminaries. This is what he says. I'm a seminary professor. And in theological education, you are hard-pressed to find many evangelical institutions that have a regular requirement of black and brown authors. And often what happens is whiteness becomes the standard by which all theology is judged. I don't know about you, dear friends, but I never picked up a book, a theological book, and said, I wonder what the color of this person is. That really changes things. Did you hear what this man is saying? The color of the author's skin needs to be a determining factor in which books are being used in the seminary classroom. It's not about the best book. It's about a certain number of black authors. This is abominable. This is partiality. This is sin. So you have two theological books. They walk into the seminary president's library. One of them by a black author and one of them by a white author. You say to the black author, you go in the classroom and start teaching the kids and you say to the white author, be gone. doesn't matter who's best. doesn't matter which book is best. It's not even, listen, it's not even about receiving the best theological education by using the best books. It's about diversity. What's that? Partiality. If you show partiality, you commit sin. Dare I say, if you look at black people and white people and Hispanics and Asians, and for some reason you feel the need that that, that one of them needs to be preferred all over the other based upon those external factors, you have committed partiality, you have sinned, and are a transgressor of the law. This is what James is teaching. James, after rebuking his readers for showing favoritism to the rich, does not say, Now! Start showing favoritism to the poor. Do you notice that? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say it's wrong for you to favor the rich over the poor. Now show favoritism to the poor. No. Treat everyone equally is what he's saying. We're not to look at people and based upon external factors, treat them differently. Partiality is sin. And this is why it's so important for us to use biblical terminology because we, when we use words such as reverse racism and things like that, they have no biblical roots. Let me close by emphasizing once again that the, the fact that, that Christ demonstrates his impartiality by, by saving all sorts of people. Isn't this a wonderful thing that you can go to almost any country and see Christians? And they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of them are so black that they're, that they're purple. Don't worry, I won't get in trouble for saying that. So some are pale. Some are Asian. Some are African. I mean, I mean, even here, what a wide variety of people we have. And if you think of the, the social economics of the church, it's, it's wide-ranging, and this is a wonderful thing. Christ saves without discrimination. And this is our expectation. What did Christ say in the Great Commission? Go and make disciples of all people groups.
does not discriminate in salvation. We are not to discriminate in evangelism or, or disciple making or in any part of our lives. God is not impart God is not partial. Christ is not partial. Neither should his followers be. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which, though written so long ago, could not be more relevant to our situation today. What a wonderful thing that you have not left us blind, groping in the dark for answers. Everything is here in your book. If we would only search your scriptures. Father, help us to be a beacon of light in this community, of what it looks like to be impartial. And Father, we know that sometimes in our hearts, if we're going to be honest, sometimes in our hearts we show partiality. Forgive us for that, Lord. Sometimes we show partiality thinking that it's noble. Sometimes we do it for, for, for self-gain, Father. Forgive us for that and, and cause us to repent. Father, may this church not be influenced by the culture, but, but may the influence of the gospel permeate the culture around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.